0: You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Srivastava Prakash.
1: This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, go to Simplify.us. No Simplify ETFs will be discussed in this episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Hugh Hentry. Hugh Hentry, as many of you may know, was formerly the head of Eclectica Asset Management. He's now known as the asset capitalist. Hugh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's wonderful to have you on.
0: Um a pleasure i've 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 heard many great things.
1: I appreciate that. And Hugh, so you know, I wanted to kick off by talking a bit about your background and how you got into finance. So could you talk a bit about you know your journey to one, how you got started, and then you know your journey running eclectica because I think you also came to uh, you're, you, you also um to initially start off as a value investor and then you went short the European banks during the great financial crisis and so on. And then, you started doing some luxury real estate in the Caribbean so could you talk a bit about you know sort of the transition between each one of those phases of your life
0: yeah it's all about real estate um I moved from a, a European housing project which was kind of gray and violent um to you know the the billionaire island of of St Bart's in the Caribbean um today you find me I'm a bit of a a noba a nomad I, I like to think that I think all of my possessions are in 13 compostable plastic bags and uh, and I can so anyway on my tour just now I find myself in Venice which is kind of Venice Beach which is kind of where my tribe hang out um so point to point if you will um last weekend uh, I revisited um that project and it was quite discombobulating in that. A place which exists in my memory, in my head, I can see buildings, and when I get there, it's it's all gone. Yeah, you know, it was a profound folly of urban planning, um, and it it fostered and it, and it created um, a grotesque um, urban landscape, and so they they cleared it, um, and my all that remained of my school, bizarrely was that the school gates. And so it I sometimes I have the refrain when when we experience these sharp turning points in financial markets. Uh, I have the refrain of I can see dead people. And and it kind of felt like that going back and 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 seeing the the shift in the matrix from my the imagined reality that will live live long um in my my mind versus the what is what no longer exists. So anyway, whimsy, um, I would say to you a function of um, serendipity and fortitude um, took me via various unusual paths and, and took that kind of scared 10 year old um, and, and pushed him through an, an education as a fundamental investor. I kind of want to push back a little bit on, on the value thing. Um, I was working for a, an investment franchise that sought to protect risk through superior stock selection. And owing to the intellectual endeavours, they were concentrated portfolios. Um, and, and the kids who worked there were trained not to become attached. It was a detachment process and so you would be constantly shifting between sector and between geography in the hope that you would learn to see a good business regardless of context Um, and then that kind of wheel of fortune continued to move and I found myself because whilst I was trained in a magnificent manner in Edinburgh um, it did not coincide with my quirky DNA and it wasn't until I found myself in London um, with this tiny little group of hedge funds, Um, hedge funds didn't really exist back then, um, where I was then able to kind of forge a synthesis between the quirkiness, the curiosity, the playfulness, that kind of fluid state of investing um, solidified by everything that I gained in terms of knowledge from the the austerity of, of edinburgh um and so i navigated the uh the fallout of the the tech uh crash at the turn of the century with a long only portfolio over three years the german stock market was down 80 percent, 80 and my fund was was up three you know I, I never get the plaudits for the magnitude of the rise but the lack of correlation was comforting and from that i, I won a mandate to take on a a global macro portfolio, which is the highest calling, I believe. Maybe it's self-interest, but I I believe it it, it was the highest calling because we live in a world of, of of silos, of specialism, of attachment and not detachment. And the macro world is the most frustrating because there is no... there's never a moment you know it's such a fluid expansive horizon that there's not any one beta source that you can pretend is alpha so um, to give someone that license to do macro was kind of the ultimate accolade uh, back then and I want to say now in the sense that you can literally do anything except except one would hope lose clients precious money Um, and so I I ran a macro hedge fund for 15 years, um, and that ended in 2017. Um, it was, despite my passion, it was becoming joyless, and joy is my energy. So um, I I reside, for the most part, in the Caribbean, and about two or three years ago, I started, I, I felt an, a desire to share the impulses and, and the, the thoughts that seemed to reach me, despite um, d- despite not having the terminals and, and the live feeds, so that's my that's my story. Too long.
1: No, not at all. And I think that I think that was a great story. And when it comes to you know the perspective that you know you've gained since twenty seventeen when you sort of stepped away professionally and geographically from. Now you moved down to the Caribbean, no longer until London and New York. Um, as well as professionally. Now you, as much as you trade for your own account, you know you don't have to manage money professionally. So you know, what what is the perspective that you've gained from that shift?
0: The, the perspective I want to say is how you you can run and run, but if something is inherently within you, it it, it remains there. Um. And so I, I'm not an active risk investor with regard to the, the, common, ask, the common and most uh, popularly traded uh, markets. Um, I find my, my endeavors, um, and my payoff, wealth payoff has been investing in St. Bart's uh, real estate, which is to say building kind of glory, gloriously luxurious uh, villa rentals. On an island which is tiny, an island which is sought after. I, I think of that. What's that? That famous Christmas uh, movie about the bank, and, and the bank is ready to throw himself off the bridge, and you know the intervention of angels, uh, and that notion that when a when a bell, you know when the church bell starts ringing, um, a new angel has been admitted into into paradise, into heaven, and I I like thinking of of. Of those those bells because i you know i say bells i see voices in my head but there i am surfing and and doing architecture interior design and and and, my, and like being a janitor if you will and yet the lucid lucidity and i think and i hope the potency of some of the observations that i'm able to form within my my self-consciousness it just I think what I want to say is it reveals again and again, the conceit of modernity, that we think that um, it's a function of investment in IQ and in technology and, and having um, technology to increase the, the speed and the rapidity of what you're doing and to provide a, an infinite source of information. And somehow that that guarantees or, or deliver returns. And what I'm finding is that uh, to a conscious, curious mind. And it's there. It's almost as if someone's sending it there's a secret Wi-Fi.
1: So it's sort of just what's within you, that's it's that's sort of what you're saying. Like within you, you sort of felt uh, almost like a calling um to go and manage money professionally and to trade macro. That and for most people who are doing that or who should be doing that, you know, that's sort of what you need to look for
0: yeah i i'm no surprise that the movie i was thinking is um it's a wonderful life and uh, there are certainly aspects of wonder uh, in my life but, but you know, one of the great wonders when i meet people who are you know from risk markets um is my ability to engage with them i think wow you know um uh, so again i think that should be a celebration to your audience because um infant, you know again if you don't it's the debasement. Information has become fiat, uh, and information is widely available at, at little cost. Um, but it's 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 character. Again, if I had any, uh, if I distinguished myself in when, when you ask about career and 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 the path, um, I think the one that's most evident is that. I had the courage to do it, you know. Let's do Frank Sinatra to do it my way. But that was to be, again, to be detached. I keep saying this word, detached. I didn't want an engagement with a salesperson offering the edge coming from the flow from their trading book. That, that was meaningless to me. Um, I didn't want the edge from the 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 from the the VIP access to central banks, you know, and you, you get bulge bracket managers and they kind of gloat about that good luck you know that that wouldn't work for me um and, and and my rationalization was how could i possibly outperform the smartest minds if i sought to simply emulate what they did so I, I again try and think have courage and then try and think of so you know it's this linear algebra which is i'm not a linear algebra. i'm not an algebra person i'm not a linear person you bring those two together and boom my bridge is closed um but it's you know, Um I'll I'll leave it to everyone to work it out themselves. No, <laughs> I would agree. So uh
1: from school, I mean I would attest that, you know, algebra is a terribly boring subject.
0: Necessary, but uh, but
1: necessary, yeah. but yeah, exactly. Um you know, moving on, I wanted to I definitely wanted to talk about markets. Um and you know, I wanted to kick it off by saying, so, you, know, you 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 briefly mentioned uh, the how you navigated the tech bust, uh, and you know, German stocks dropping eighty percent. And you know, if it combined, uh, you know, oh one oh eight occurs, as you know, you're suspecting aside from panic, you know, how should one be positioned right now, and what does the aftermath
0: look like? Heavens, um, I mean. One can say many things, and and the pushback should always be um, some probability determination, you know, ranking and um, of, of of any assertion about what might happen next, because you know it, it's absurd to to actually talk about what happens next. Um, I simply like to ask questions, and then and then feel the resonance internally, and and then feedback from others. Um, the notion of a combination of uh, of of the tech crash and and two thousand and seven two thousand and eight is, you know, um, probably the probability would have to be modest. Um, not to say it can't be, but I guess the the background to that was the magnitude, the drawdown in the drawdown in wealth from markets. Um, Prices fall, um, and the magnitude of of that wealth decline uh, versus one year's GDP, you, you get serious um, and prolonged economic declines when you wipe out multiples of, of, of GDP. We I think we wiped out about one times GDP back in the the Nasdaq peak. Uh, the the problem and the and, and fear and fear is always with us, but. Is the mag- magnitude of wealth to us uh, to GDP today being well at its peak uh, in twenty twenty one being seven seven and a half times? Um, we've already had a kind of Nasdaq like uh, diminution in in asset values, which is the equivalent of one year's GDP. Um, mm-hmm. and, and and owing to that, I think that that there's a large part of that explaining the sh- shape of the yield curve because you know uh, wiser people. And when I say wiser, I mean people who would actually suffer from the consequences of their risk decisions. I think when there is a, a penalty, when, when being wrong carries a penalty, I think it creates more uh, sagacious uh, um, opinions, if you will. And so I think that decline in uh, asset values vis-a-vis GDP is one of the determinants of the uh, the, the bond markets going, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about this.
1: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so, you know, when it comes to this idea of inflation versus deflation, could you sort of outline your views as well as you know how you think you know risk assets would play out according to that
0: view? Well, um, so I I've hypothecated that um inflation is a terribly hard thing to create in in let's call it our modern democracies. And in that our modern modern democracies kind of have no parallels with societies which have suffered from severe inflation um, mm-hmm. and the the difference is the again the scale and the magnitude of um, asset markets vis-a-vis gdp and and so it opens up the possibility of a, of the tail wagging the dock and there's a lot of comparison with the 1970s and with central banking back then, under the guidance of Paul Walker, who was raising interest rates in a recession. Um, and I simply like to caution that he was provocative in that action. And it still carried with it, a sev- obviously, a severe economic uh, contraction that the two um, Recessions of the '70s were the greatest in the post-war period prior to the Great Financial uh, Crash, uh, but that was with debt being 1.5 times GDP. It's like four and a half times GDP. So the idea that that you can be Volcker-esque and that you can you can reset interest rates, come what may, you know, come you to the judgment of, of 15 people meeting kind of uh, every six weeks ago, um, I say they ha- haven't seen. Be careful. Um, I, I can't see how that can be carried out. Um, we're at a kind of something of an impasse in that they have c- carried out their, um, their rate hikes. They've demonstrated, it would seem, a willingness to do more. Uh, and markets, equity risk markets had been down, what, 20 22%? Uh, and then we're only down about 10 from the all-time highs. Now I guess where we're, where are we? But you know, somewhere in between. Um, not a huge big deal. And so, does that validate? Uh, and does that give the the Federal Reserve the power to to keep raising? And and I just I fear the consequences of that. So again, you know, the a parallel with the Great Financial Crisis. And and this is, yeah, I I, I say It's intellectual kind of, um, um, uh, hypothecating, but um. It turning points and hits to market expectations seem to be intrinsically linked uh, to collateral and the confidence in collateral and the collateral of choice, um, the choice of the euro dollar credit system throughout the world. And the crisis of 2007 was a crisis of collateral. That I like to come back to words such as uh, conceit and arrogance, of which there was much um, in the the mortgage-backed security package, you know, that by packaging geographical diversity into U.S. mortgage risk assets, that um, you created something which had perhaps less risk than a U.S. Treasury. Mm-hmm. And therefore was this fantastic form of collateral. And so the banking system, remember, the European banks had more credit exposure to the U.S. housing market than domestic banks. Yeah, um, That a uh, widespread adoption of collateral under underwriting loans to the real economy when it was called into question you know the conceit was no one said okay we have no observation of an of a consistent geographical that all states died at the same time no one really kind of brought well, but again is that a, it's never going to happen that's the conceit is it a 5% probability a 15 25 that never seemed to enter the fray as that did and, and that collateral was rejected, then you had to be selling the M- MBS packages into a market where none of your mm-hmm. peer group had it, so we saw the explosive price action, and buying U.S. Treasury bills. And there's, a, there's an argument to be said that this kind of alchemy, like out of poo-poo you create, out of lead you create gold, in terms of gold and collateral. Have we gone through a similar experience since 2012, when Mario Draghi um, gave the full endorsement of the ECB um, to to Greek and Italian bonds, principally Italian at that point? And so there is a there is a a well formed rational argument, just like there was for the mortgage-backed securities, to say, listen, the German government is obliged to run to run a primary surplus; they don't create enough bonds for us to sus- sustain collateral. You know, we couldn't go back to a gold standard because there's not enough gold to sustain the amount of credit creation we would need, okay? There's not enough boons or, you know, shats, uh, you know, the short-term yield paper being issued for it to be um, the principal collateral item. But then you have Italy and they they, they just keep printing. They'll give you as much as you want. And if it carries the imprimatur of the ECB, then you've just, again, there's an alchemy and so what if the the rise in the dollar this year and you see the euro breaking the buck and it, and again obviously uh, the energy crisis the sovereign crisis of a generation of politicians failing to secure a perpetual right to kind of either indigenous or free uh, uh, energy is certainly uh, a large culpable factor in the weakness of the euro but what if with interest rates rising and the E.C.B. has made a vague promise, but it, the language is vague, and, and what if people are being tapped on the shoulder and saying, listen, that collateral, those BTPs that I accepted, mm, you know, with, with the guidance from central banks, what they're telling is, I, I, my risk assessment is I'd rather have U.S. Treasury bills. So what, mm. what do you have to do? You have to sell euros, you have to buy dollar assets. Yeah, you know, is there a conceit and an arrogance embedded into BTPs? Have they gone on to become one of the uh, the most dominant determinants of collateral in the global credit markets? Now, if they have, and if there's an unwind, you know, that, that's the world of kind of um, uh, tail-like portfolios. And then can you price that up? accordingly?
1: Got it. Yeah. And, you know, sticking on that um, idea of bond for, Bond to the Fed for a minute. Um, you know, is this short end you know controlled only by the Fed, or you know does it also have a connection to short-term, say, private bond yields or something else? So because otherwise, you know can the Fed always uninvert the curve? And you know right now we see the curve is deeply inverted. So can the Fed always get the yield curve sort of uninverted or normalized by having short-term yields lower than long term ones simply by cutting uh, cutting interest rates
0: um, they they they're for sure a a determinant factor like in very small ranges and you know, if if they um absolutely guarantee they're going to raise the rates to five percent then markets have to you know, price that in. Um, but by and large they're they're impotent and and there's another debate going on and again it comes back to collateral you can you can create collateralized um packages by going to the fed window and having the underwriting of the fed behind you um you know fed funds paper market you know, with different uh, short term tenors um. And and banks are not doing that, you know, they're, they're actually, they're, they're buying treasury bills with, and, and they're accepting um, lower commercial returns, but they need that to feed the collateral machine, you know, it's this giant machine that just kind of, you know, I need collateral, I need collateral, I need collateral, you know, make, what do you mean you don't have boons, make something, okay, BTPs, you know, so, um, and people don't see that ferocious appetite, and when it, hey, when it goes, oh, you know, Markets, markets kind of shudder, and and again you start getting um you, you enter the world of three dimensional you know um, time series analysis, and you start looking at curves and you know um, and the like. That's when it becomes fun. It does, yes. And
1: you know, moving away from uh, moving away from bonds and central banks just for a little bit. You know, I wanted to to take a flight, you know, away from. Uh, Washington, D.C., go to China and talk a bit about China and its economic future. What is your view on China going forward? And, you know, can it correct its, uh, its current economic imbalances over, say, the next five to 10 years, Um, especially with now the Politburo meeting coming up in mid-October, October the 16th? Uh, so what are you thinking, Um, you know, going into that?
0: Okay, it's heavens. A lot that one could say um, where to begin? Um, if you want to spend yeah, the rest of the podcast fix... talking
1: about China, I'm perfectly fine with yeah. that.
0: Sure. Well, let's see. So, uh, can they fix it? I don't. I, I don't believe so. I I I I put a paper together. I must find it. Um, but you go through all the the variations. So first of all, you you have to replace about thirty five the contribution to GDP of about one third, which came from um, property. You know, the residential. Predominantly the residential property build and um, the infrastructure, you know, the, the the sovereign government via you know its agents in the in the, the local governments, you know, uh, and their spending, and you know that became the principal mechanism for growth uh, post the great financial crisis. Um, the work of uh, Michael Pettis uh, over in Beijing, um, the lie. Reveals itself. What is the lie? The lie is um, GDP growth at the expense of wealth. When that happens, uh, debt rises. You, you're creating um, you you're creating fictitious wealth. Um, what is? Imagine a a billion dollar investment connecting um, two very poor, very rural uh, towns to to Beijing. The idea of transporting people who were earning, say, $7,000 a year and being able to uh, allow them to travel, cut the travel time down by two hours. So the utility function from that speed for in- engaging and moving around citizens earning that amount of money, um, that's hard. Spend a billion dollars, if you will, linking the cities of Birmingham or Manchester to London, where the per capita GDP might be closer to, would be $50,000. Yeah? You're Yeah, going to get a return. If you don't, then you, you see the manifestation of these debt levels. And what you have to understand is that uh, the, the, the GDP model, is, and it's about the preservation of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, they, they need to be present. They have to demonstrate that um, the system works and it generates GDP, which is supposedly prosperity for the many. It's not. It's a mirage. So I don't see how they replace that. I don't see how they replace that. At the same time, I think you'll have an enduring um, wealth shock. The property market is just so enormous vis-a-vis GDP, and I don't believe even you know autocratic governments can um, hide that. The overseas sector, in terms of um, selling more to strangers, and um, their their trade surplus with the rest of the world is already over 1% of the rest of the world GDP. And who knows, but that historically has been a very challenging level and the, the rate of like acceleration they need for that to, to replace, um, say, infrastructure, property, is, is so enormous that they would run against trade uh, complaints from their partners. So I don't see it coming there. Um, it then op- opens us up into, we, we came into this conversation from the Fed um, and the Fed's quantitative easing, and the Fed is printing money, and and the fact that at the height of the the fear with with COVID back in the year twenty twenty, that several members, including Powell, were were on television saying that they printed money when you know they're they're not legally capable of printing money. They'd be in prison if they were, but you know you know they were saying it. And of course, within two years, we have these elevated relative price, price increases from um, non-discretionary items. And so they kind of own, own that. But I think the, the function which explains the rise in asset values over the period coinciding with quantitative easing from Western governments, I think it's better explained by the mercantilist uh, trading strategy uh, principally of the Chinese. Where they manage a dirty float, that the kind of quid pro quo from the West opening its markets to the West accepting that non skilled labor would be dislocated. But there was mm-hmm. a dream that in creating a, a wealthier and more productive trading neighbor, that via the mechanism of currency, you know, the citizens of, of that uh, productive economy would be rewarded via higher value of their exchange rate. And that's a wealth gain vis-a-vis the rest of the world, because they can buy things from us uh, with a commitment to less and less of their own currency. That's a good thing, you know. That would create uh, autonomous growth within China, and it would actually create growth for the rest of the world. This is the missing growth part, which explains why, globally, GDP has failed to maintain the 30-year trend that it was enjoying up until the great financial crisis. You know, so there's a shortfall, and it's a shortfall which each year becomes uh, becomes trillion dollar wide, and it explains, I think, a lot of the um, the the anger that resides in um, in society. Now, the mechanism for all of that is um, sovereign governments and their agents electing to own about seven trillion dollars of U.S. treasuries. So they uh, the U.S. is the recipient of, of that money because it has large liquid markets and it respects by and large contract law. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful asset asset. Um, but the US is not in the 19th century. It's not building dams, it's not building, you know, canals, it's not building multiple railway lines to the same place, etc. Uh, the US um, its investment needs can, can be met abundantly from domestic resources and yet you have the rest of the world's cap Savings descending on the US. Um, so if investment is not going to rise, um, then the colliery is found in asset prices rising and and more and more people being dislocated um, and, and losing, you know, and finding themselves at food banks. I was in the UK last week and the number of people um, talking about food banks is, is extraordinary. I say all of that comes from sovereign nations being managing exchange rates and it ends up creating a bit like a gold standard and it could break i think it there's a great danger that it breaks that that currency has to be um uh, that the chinese because of the difficulty in producing and fixing the gdp model do they they should be revaluing we should be talking about um like needing four remember to buy one dollar today it's closer to seven if it trades at nine or higher then you're talking about a profoundly deflationary world. So, it's, um, these are things that one can be scared of. And then the challenge, again, is to uh, attach probabilities and then find out where you are with the relevancy of those probabilities for those events happening.
1: Uh huh. And I think the other point that Mike Pettis has sort of highlighted with what's going on right now is so recently we saw China post a massive trade surplus. And the dynamics of that are interesting because what we're not observing is the higher export earnings being recycled down to higher wages for for workers and we're still seeing weak domestic demand. So my question is, you know, when it comes away, you know, historically China's solution uh to weak demand or to a weak economy has simply been to devalue. You know, one, you know, is that is that the likely course of action considering the recent um, uh, considering the recent turmoil in their property market, one and two, you know, if they if they do devalue, you know, how you know how much can they devalue, and you know, to what extent is that going to be useful to their economy?
0: Um, were they to devalue, it would it would be a, I I think you'd be talking about nineteen twenty nine and the uh, and what it would mean the significance to uh, global trade that that we could lose. The advances of, of 50 years. Um it still has to be a a very low probability just because of how um destructive it would prove. Um, mm-hmm. it'd be profoundly deflationary. You know the the and, and you continue to go the wrong way. I, I keep maintaining that the world will heal when we break that mercantilist kind of hold on 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 economies. That I think the US is in serfdom to the Chinese. And people see it the other way. But this profound um, abundance of capital is turning a, a trading nation into a speculative, has turned it into a speculative, uh, a speculative society. Um, so I would actually say, you know, my thing is, if I was a policymaker, I would be charging and trying to discourage the uh, the holding of U.S. Treasuries on behalf of sovereign nations. And so I'd, I'd start by charging them you know, an economic grant, a withholding tax, and it'd be substantial. It'd be every year that they had that position. Um, I think they would pay it. I'm talking about, say, three percentage points as a tax. I think they would pay it because they are not profit-seeking. They're not portfolio managers. Those Treasuries are held um, in order to, to manage the currency. So I would push back in that manner. Um, in terms of trying to, ju- so the again that their tr- their trade surplus with the rest rest of the world has never been higher, and so again you kind of the, the implicit rules you're not allowed to devalue into that situation. I, again, that would bring uh, that would bring conflict. Um, but the scale of the how do you, you know the the million dollar or the million pound gorilla in the room is is property, residential property, and the top tick was ninety. U.S. trillion dollars, $15 trillion economy. Um, a devaluation, you can see a dialogue, which is, well, we have to devalue um, the real estate market in dollar terms. Yeah. I, I could see pushback there, but, but you, what kind of devaluation do you need to, to, to get 90 closer to 15? I mean, it's just untenable. And then the other wild card, of course, is the weakness in the yen um and there's just something about mercantilist nations you know my memory goes back to uh, the tiger crisis the asian tiger crisis at the end of the 1990s and at the end of it um taiwan devalued and there were just there were just no economic circumstances that could possibly justify that it was it was not under duress and it had no deficit in, in funding needs mm-hmm. but they did so because it you know it's the scorpion hitting the neck of the, the frog, giving it safe passage. And he said, as they sink under the water, why did you do that? Because that's my nature. I can't let my neighbours steal a march using the currency. I've got to reprice down to where they are. You know, I'm sorry, you know, I'm a mercantilist. So things going around, but but they have been naughty. I think um, they, they reset to about um, eight, eight spot five in 1984, if you think of the dollar or rate. And that today is six point seven five, which I think in in terms of the profound changes in the Chinese economy from nineteen eighty four, um, we got a raw deal. You know that's why I keep saying we should be tr- that it should be closer to four, and not seven, and certainly not eight, and God forbid it's nine or ten.
1: Hmm. No, that's 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 definitely definitely very interesting. And you know when it comes to this idea of you know she's um uh, staying on. As leader of China for life, um, you know that that is sort of one of the things that's going to be discussed at the next Politburo meeting in October. Now, how do you think that plays out? You know, one if it one, if the if the CCP approves, you know, Xi Jinping leader for life. You know, how does that you know how does that actually fare out for risk assets and investors within Asia?
0: I mean, I I would say, um, I say that's a kind of known known, um. And that, that it's, it's a continuation of the. So, so you're
1: saying that it's almost certain that he's going to stay on for life.
0: I I would be surprised if that wasn't if that wasn't the case. Okay. Um, my, my question to you is: What is the bill case on China? I don't have one.
1: I don't I, I, I don't have one. So um, hmm. it it does seem as if that she is she does seem to be a little bit hell bent on uh replacing uh or or sort of paying uh uh, reducing the leverage within the private sector but beyond that you know i don't think there there really is you know demographically they're not in a good spot you know from a debt standpoint at least at the moment they're not in a good spot the the heavy reliance on property markets and then you know the low domestic demand at the moment etc it's it's just it just seems to be a big mess so
0: which you know that they're and it gets messier and And I'm not a geopolitical um, person, but as everything as is, is, is as all, all of their great economic powers seem to be reversing, where they stand most powerful in the in, in the world relative to the rest of the world is in their power to disrupt the rest of the world. and And they are disrupting the rest of the world via their exchange rate and And the tensions it's bringing to Western societies. Uh, they are disrupting the rest of the world in the speculation inherent in risk asset prices. Um, but were they to follow, God forbid, but follow the antics of of russia and and have um, a skirmish with with China um, with Taiwan? Um, if that's a long, you know if he's i'm I'm the boss forever, I, I said I was going to do this. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to rationally. It makes sense to do it now because in 15 years' time, I think their their power vis-a-vis the rest rest of the world will have been diluted. But that's 15 years' time, and if we're talking the next 15 months, um, their their power will never be stronger to disrupt the rest of the world.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, if if she used to invade Taiwan, you know, you would say. Do it within the next 15 years. Or, sorry, do it within the next 15 months or don't do it at all. And, okay. Yeah. And and you know, we sort of started to see the shift towards a proper multipolar world. Um, and you and you know, you could argue that you know China seems to so you know you have the US as sort of the beacon of power in the West, and then you also have Russia and China to try and fight for a share of power. You know, what is what is your view on this multipolar world theory?
0: I, I don't really subscribe to it. Um, you know, Russia is less than 2% of GDP um, and seems to be um, acting somewhat, I I would say, irrationally. I mean, you know, war is irrational. Mm-hmm. Um, China, again, we've, we've just listed um, its growing burden. It feels like it's listing. Um, and I think it, it it comes back to revealing there's too much to stay in for the U.S. Um, we have prop again. I would say I I'd attribute not all of it, but I would attribute a significant factor on the travails of of Western and this kind of surplus savings, this deficit of demand, the fact that we have never regained the projectile of GDP growth, and so we're leaving citizens behind. I'd 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 say there's a substantial element of that coming from the organisation of international trade, mm-hmm. and it's not being recognised by by politicians of the centre, or indeed politicians, you know, of the of the fringes, except in the the building anger. Got it. Got it. And you know, when it you know when when it comes to building
1: anger, you know, a lot of a lot has been said, especially on Finch with with regards to what's going on. With European energy, and sort of the question, uh, the question ends up being, will the will the energy crisis get resolved by placing the burden on producers through you know means of price controls, etc., or would it be placed on consumers through the advent of higher um, electricity and energy prices? You know, how do you think that? How, how do you you know the 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 at least on FinTech, the consensus seems to be that likely cons- uh, likely that um, this burden is going to be placed on producers. So how are you thinking through the resolution of what's going on with European energy right now?
0: Well, I mean, uh, transferring it to the producers will just prolong it. You know, there's a there's a, a profound surplus, uh, shortage. Yeah, There's a pr- profound time delay between taking action t- today and, and delivering. Um, we're in this situation. One of the factors taking us into this situation was that Either the taxing or the denouncement of exploration, which created a dependency on an irrational uh, foreign sovereign nation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, in my mind the the more interesting question, and and obviously it's been people are speculating at it every day in like nat gas exploration stocks in the, in the US. Um, in that what i want to say um yeah in terms of how long can you european households are paying effectively six hundred dollars per barrel of oil if you kind of harmonize all the various the alphabet city of different natural gas uh, thermal units etc um how long is, is that the exception and, and indeed, when you work through natural gas prices to, you know, to the U.S., and the U.S. is so low, um, how does that play out? Does it take the U.S. up? Um, what would be the mechanism? Can you keep it apart? Um, but also, GDP growth for the rest of the world vis-a-vis the U.S., I, people are still looking at uh, forward gas curves and, and seeing a reversion. Um, the extremes we have owing to the, the profound time delay, and like you say, the taxing producers. You know, like um, it's a bit like with COVID. Imagine we turned around and we just, we said we're just gonna you know, we, we need a we need a you know a solution to this virus. We need a an, an antibody, whatever. And um, we're gonna tax, we're gonna tax all of the pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, would that yeah. be wise? So it's, it's clearly not wise. And but
1: but, yeah, but on the other hand, you know, if you place it on the consumers, and you say, "Hey, you're not going to be pe- uh, you're not going to be paying three times what you used to pay for you know electricity prices and to heat your house, you know there's going to be some amount of social unrest on the streets you're going to yeah. see and there was a very interesting um i think it was uh, it was on Twitter recently of how the French middle classes almost practically disappeared, and so I think about fifty percent of France makes i think what was it three euros. Three, sorry, three thousand euros a month or less, and so I think that was that was insane because that's about thirty six thousand um uh, euros a year, which is about thirty six thousand dollars a year now that's come down to parity and so would you so you know, would the wouldn't the other solution be worse at least from a government standpoint
0: well it it, it is one of those factors which um does embellish. Uh, the the inf- the inflation thesis, you know, uh, catching fire. Um, I am, I've been skeptical about the ability of um, the higher price levels in energy trans- transferring itself into the into all uh, the prices of all goods and services mm-hmm. rising. You know uh, that because I've not seen the euro dollar credit system desperate to expand loans into the world. I don't see the money, monetary creation that would be able to facilitate spending ten percent more than you did last year. You need ten percent more credit provided, and if and if it's only seven, then something has to take the strain, and that would be um, the discretionary spending. You know, um, cinema viewings and, and revenue from North American uh, cinemas is, I think, fifty nine percent below where it was in twenty nineteen. You know, the, there's a kind of how it plays out. But then what if the, and, and, and why, again, the, the idea of private sector negotiated higher wages to compensate is hard in a world where you have mercantilism, you know, where you, where you have nation states which can, you know, can, can displace those jobs. You know, for my mind, the, the rage that I, ha- I have today is that that mercantilist trading system is effectively a class war on the poorest members of our society. And at the same time, now the Fed is coming in and it's raising interest rates, and again, it's felt disproportionately on on that that lowest class of lowest income class within society, who back in the day in two thousand and nine had to underwrite the the asset holders in the economy, and if and, and they get rewarded today by you know thirty year mortgage rates at six percent, so um, so I think what we're likely to see is and what we are seeing is step by step European governments. Um, effectively paying the difference um, and, and, and subsidizing. So kind of similar to what we saw in COVID. Um, but that, that if that comes to pass, then that would facilitate the ability to maintain your consumption uh, at higher and higher prices. Um, and so that's something that has to be watched for. But again, there's all these breakages. So say the inflation does take, take over and say you know, German bonds are yielding 4%, Where is Italy? And and what is the feeling of that collateral, which is underwriting the system today? And again, if that breaks, then that would be a big fire, like a firewall protection that would then douse the the inflation coming out of the government sector. So it's, you know, it's, right now there's so, it's entertaining because there's so many things that could happen. Um, And that has, that should be, that should, that widening of the, the frontier of what could happen should be reflected. In um again, risk assessment, when there's more likelihood that lots of things can happen, what's your price for that versus the certainty of maybe uh, of maybe two years ago? linear algebra?
1: Yes, yep, yeah. I think uh, I think that's I think I, and I think that's very really interesting because uh, you also sort of mentioned that when it comes to this inflation idea, you know you're not seeing the euro dollar market create credit, et cetera. Uh, um, you know, I think the other big structural force there is demographics. Um, where we're starting to see, and to an extent, in the U.S. they're still decent, but, well, across the world, say China or Canada or throughout Europe or Japan, you know, we're we're just seeing really shitty demographics. And you know, how do you do? You know, how would, the, you know, if you were the government, you know, what would you do to? resolve this problem, you know, would you simply be increasing immigration, you know, incentivize the creation of more babies? And we've sort of seen some of that in some of these countries, but we haven't really, we haven't really seen that trend, you know, drastically change. So, you know, what would you, you know, what would you go about doing if you were the government right now?
0: Okay, okay, let me give you a silly answer. I would pay for the research uh, to demonstrate that metformin, which is a, a, a 50-year-old drug for treating diabetes um, actually can extend or improve the average uh, living life. Um, there is no one, there's no one willing to spend, I think it would be one and a half billion dollars, the US government is not willing to spend it um, because you're talking about a genetic drug. Um, diabetes is, is a serious illness, serious illness, um, and many studies have revealed that patients T- treating the diabetes with metformin have actually outlived um, um, a sample of, of, if you will, non-diabetic, healthier, supposedly healthier populations. That needs to be test- tested on a more rigorous basis. And at least that would give us a, a fitter, leaner uh, population uh, to try and strive for productivity. Productivity in the I don't, I don't. The I'm kind of ducking your question a little bit on the demographics. Um, it's everywhere. It it's known. Um, I kind of, I can't really make, I can't kind of, I can't play a tune uh, with that.
1: Brady, could you say that again? Nick, could you say that last bit again?
0: I just, uh, I, for the fact the the prevalence of the, the knowledge base concerning the demographics and the fact that it's common just about to the major economies, um, I I can't really, I can't I can't derive anything kind of out of my mind that, that, that would be, um, that would be valuable.
1: Okay. Okay. No worries. And, um, you know, when it, also when it comes to this other threat, uh, other trend that we're starting to see is a potential decarbonization and, you know, so sort of the government has induced decarbonization in you know, every sort of factor, excluding nuclear energy. And, you know, we're not, you know some part of the some part of the German and the French um or at least german the, some part of the German energy crisis is caused by the fact that they've closed down a lot of the nuclear plants you know increased their reliance on natural gas that was supplied by a hostile neighbor uh you know how do you you know how do you think one the transition to green energy plays out into do you think that you know uranium and nuclear will eventually have to play an important role as much as you know it sort of seems obvious that you know nuclear is the way you know forward and you know it's clean and all of that but then it does it just seems as if you know the government or the go. you know what would make the governments change their policy and their
0: views towards uranium and nuclear well, well it, it's 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 happening um and, and 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 all those western nations you, you but heavens where do we begin sometimes you know it's the um we have democracies um but the, the will, the intent of the majority, um, is not guaranteed uh, to be rational. And we live in one of those times where um, maybe it's a function of the defunding of of, of print media, uh, whereby the the public debate, the discourse, um, is not what it used to be. But it would seem that you know society was taken over by this legitimate concern about um, the carbon, the consequences of carbon um, in the atmosphere, but. In in and the remedy sought made little sense in that you were kind of just putting a break whereby the the supply of oil um, could be a, um, a disrupted in the manner that we're seeing today. That there was a naivety in that. We have to find better ways. There is a better. You know, I, I've long um, been an admirer of the the, the final. One hopes. I'm sure there will be further iterations, but after about 15 or so years, the, the iteration that the, the European carbon credit market found itself in seemed to be uh, offering a very enlightened and kind of private sector response um, to pricing what should be um, a rarer and rarer uh, commodity. Um, the intervention of the, the conflict with, with Ukraine, um, you see nuclear being switched back on, you see Green Party in Germany first time in government, and they find themselves, you know, irony, paradox, Greens in government, whoa, and, but they're burning more and more coal, they're bringing coal back on the the Green Party, you know, how, you know, context is everything. So we live in one of those worlds. Um, so yeah, um, uh, you the, I, there were many uh, positive things um and inevitably positive things, I think, with regard to the uranium sector. Um, the the biggest blight that it has today for speculators is that again, those factors are known. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't need me to tell you that probably uranium will take out the the previous market price high. Um, and you don't need me to tell you that uranium bull markets are almost like no none other, possibly silver. Um, they're kind of crazy to the upside. Um, and you have a lot of people, a bit like Bitcoin, You know, when we were down below 10,000, 10, and they were right back then. Well, not 10,000. Um, but there was that move 10,000 to 3,000. I will never sell. I will never sell. I will never sell. Done. You're out. You know, uh, the being uh, fully equipped, fully armed with the knowledge of what will happen and knowing that it's going to be so positive actually makes you the last seller. You still sell, but just... Uh, determines that you're the last seller, and I've been saying that for the the mid, all of this year. Um, in terms of, I fear that you could see a, a quite a savage pullback in the major uranium stocks. That hasn't happened. They've largely traded sideways, Vol- volatile but sideways. Um, that would still be my biggest fear before the bounty of the inevitable, a uh, very profitable future for those for, for that industry.
1: Awesome, awesome, yeah um you know before we started this podcast you know this morning i put out a tweet on twitter and it was sort of you know i'm interviewing hugh hendry you know what should i ask him picking the best questions you know tom roderick replied and he said if you had to buy or you know if you hugh hendry had to buy one uh tradable uh one tradable asset and hold it for the next five years what would it be and why um
0: tom roderick of all people in fact yeah it, he's he's pushing my buttons so you don't know that he's pushing my buttons and almost succeeding. but um uh, through through conscious breathing now i do, I don't uh, automatically respond to those uh, triggers um because you know I was the the plasticine macro trader flexibility flexibility of mind and detachment, the ability to reject everything that I said the day before. And I said it with, I would hope, panache and conviction. Um, so the idea of pinning me the 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 emotional cadence of saying I'm going to own this for the next five years, right? That's not my business, you know. And I think it's it's cheap. Um, you get people who who have had portfolios with live ammunition, uh, recognize just how jarring that kind of five. You you survive five years by by being willing betrayed by recognizing that journeys from A to B uh, have several cliffhanging ending chapters, reversals, drama, uh, mistakes, errors before triumph. So, so I'll give, forgive me, poetry rather than the rest. Um, if The thing that intrigues me most, if, if I wanted to play that, um, I, preposterously, um, when we talked about Chinese, the risk of a Chinese devaluation, or uh, China being disruptive to the world at its choosing. Mm -hmm. When I think of the uh, elevation in European energy prices and and the profound time lag before that can be addressed and therefore the consequences on GDP growth, um, I I believe that, like, like I think almost everyone in the marketplace, I believe that, you know, the treasury bond market, the sovereign fixed income market is, at, is peaking. It's a 50-year peak. The yields are troughing, if you will. Um, and yet, um, I believe in irony and paradox. And I think that were that to come to pass, we might see a, a new low in price yields, a new high in prices. Um, and that would mark, the, that would be the the turning point. So I'm I'm relating that back to the fact that in 1982, uh, Treasury bond yields, I think, hit 16%. Now, Volcker had been raising interest rates into severe economic recession. And for two years, anyone with a heartbeat could fail but to register that inflation was collapsing. And yet, Treasuries went to 16%. So absurdity, and that's my offering for absurdity, absurdity comes to mark the top of these generational cycles now maybe that's what we saw with covid but my feeling is there's there's enough stuff that i'm picking up from my personal wi-fi that um you know if that comes to pass and people say but who would have thought that could happen well me
1: yep and i think the and yeah you know, as you mentioned plasticine man you know very fluid, very able to sort of shift your views as and when needed. And I think that's very, very cool about your approach. Well, Hugh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was awesome to have you. Could you tell the audience a little bit about more, more, a little bit more about where they can find you and your work?
0: Oh, that's very kind. So the, the asset capitalist uh, podcast we put out on, on the Apple um Podcast platform, I always get that wrong, uh, and on on YouTube, um, and you can find me on Twitter, uh, Henry underscore Hugh at or at hendry underscore Hugh. I'm not very good at this. Well, he, well, oh, he was a And forgive me, acid cap. Buy the cap. Change the world. <laughs> you know, t- broadcast of the world that you are curious and playful.
1: Absolutely, Hugh. Yeah, it was it was awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.